Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 218. I believe we can already say good yontif, being that this evening begins Yud Bey's Tammuz, the Chag of the Friedrich Rebbe, 91 years ago in the year Tafresh Pezayin, was released from prison in, uh, Tuf- in that year, 1927. The reason we celebrate 20 Yud Bey's and Yud Gimel, as the Rebbe points out many times, is because Yud Beis Tammuz was a holiday. It was a secular holiday then. So even though the, the, the order was given for the release, but it wasn't actually delivered to the Friedrich Rebbe, and the actual release didn't happen until the next day, Yud Gimel Tammuz. We all know it began with a process that began with the arrest of the Friedrich Rebbe a few weeks earlier, Tezvov Sivan. Um, and um, that ultimately led to a sentence first for 10 years in Golis, then that was commuted to three years in Kastrama and Gimel Tammuz, a exile. And that was then reversed and commuted ultimately to complete release and Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tammuz. As the Rebbe points out as well, that Gimel Tammuz then serves like an Aschalta de Gaulle at the beginning of this redemption. Now one can wonder, okay, it's a powerful thing that happened, a miracle, especially in the mighty Soviet Union, that, uh, that one man was to be released and there was no due process, they could do anything with anyone. But why do we honor this day and why is it so significant to us? So we'll open up with this discussion being that this tonight is Yud Beis and uh, leading it to Yud Gimel Tammuz. And we see both the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe continued, not just the celebration, but the honoring and the lessons to be learned. Every year was a Fabrengen and Yud Beis Tammuz for all the years of the Rebbe's Nesiyas. And the same with the Friedrich Rebbe. So it all goes down to a letter that the Friedrich Rebbe wrote the first year after his release. Just to give you a little chronology, you have to remember that after Pezayin, after he came out from prison, the Russian government, the Soviet government pressured him to leave. And he would leave right after Simchastere Tafresh Peches. So we're talking here, literally, Yudbeis Thomas Pezayin of El, two, three months later, the Friedrich Rebbe would be leaving um, Russia. Soviet Union with his family, the Rebbe left as well. The Rebbe and the Rebbe Tzachemushka would, of course, get married the year following in Tafresh Peites, Yudalad Kislev. So this quickly led to the Friedrich Rebbe's leaving uh, the Soviet Union. And the Friedrich Rebbe, in that first year in Tafresh Peches, wrote a letter to Kol Bnei Bnei, to all Eden. And he wrote that the Chagagul, Loi Eisibel Vad Golas HaKadosh Baruch not I alone was, was, was redeemed, was, not I alone was redeemed on Yudbezid Gimel Tamos, Ki'im, rather it was a Geula for all those that Mechavei Teire Mitzvahs, all those that, that treasure Teire Mitzvahs, Leim De Teire, students of Teire, Marbitze Teire, those that spread Teire, and even Afilu Ad Asher B'Shem Yisrael Yechuna, even for Jews, who their only relationship with Jews, they call their, their, their name is a Jew, meaning they're not on any other level in any revelation, piety or scholarship or devotion and commitment, but they're a Jew. In other words, it's a gula for all the Jewish people. And he goes on to explain why, and this was elaborated upon in many sikhs. Briefly, the answer was because why was the Friedrich Rebbe arrested? Not for any private reasons, because he represented Teda and Yiddishkeit in the Soviet Union. They saw that as a threat and they saw him, therefore, as a threat. They did everything possible to stamp out religious commitment, and especially Jewish commitment. And you have to remember, the Rev Minyan Binyan, the largest population of Jews in the world, was in the Soviet Union. 
And the Friedrich Rebbe stood up against that and did everything possible to keep the fire burning despite all the xadis and all the decrees and all the oppression and all the killings and the pressure and all that they did possible. So when he was redeemed, it wasn't just his personal redemption, it was the redemption of Yiddishkeit and Tera Mitzvahs for all Eden. But in many different sikhs, the Rebbe goes even further and explains why, because it demonstrated that even the great mighty Soviet Union with all its philosophies, distorted philosophies, that religion is the opiate of the masses and other things that the socialist and then Soviet and the communist viewpoints on things saw that loyalty only to them and to their own needs rather than to, one, to God and to faith and to one's own religion and so on. That, that, that stood up to that, that it is legal to actually be a Jew and a committed Jew and a, uh, and a uh, devoted Jew, in, 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 even in the Soviet Union. Now, even though it was legal, does, does that mean they didn't oppress? Because they put that pressure. But on a deeper level, it meant the hell and the hester, the darkness, that opposition, the darkness of Golish, which manifested in every generation in its own way, b'chol der v'der, eim in the times of Persia was the Persians doing for the miracle of Purim. Time of Hanukkah was not physical extermination, but it was spiritual battle with the Greeks. In time of Hanukkah, and of course the Egyptians, back to Egypt. Every generation had its challenges. And here was a generation in the modern world, which in a sense had, God forbid, had they been successful in eradicating Judaism. They did enough damage, but they didn't eradicate. Had they been successful, Chaz I have to mention it, that the Friedrich Rebbe would have, been, would have been vanquished by them, what would it have done? Look how, how bad it was as it is. So the miracle here and the, and the redemption, the Geula is a Geula of the Nitzchias of Jews and their commitment to Torah and Mitzvahs. And though at the time the Friedrich Rebbe had to leave, and you could say, okay, so physically he was saved, you saw what happened afterwards, like the Rebbe would always say, for over 70 years of oppression and of discrimination against Jews in a very pressure way. What do we see today? And not only did he prevail, Judaism prevailed. You go now to Russia, to the former Soviet Union, and you see the renaissance of Jewish life. And it's hard to imagine. As even though the doors only opened up 1990, as the Rebbe spoke about then, which we're talking about uh, less than 20, 1990, 2000, 2010, almost 30 years ago. Yet the growth there far surpasses growth elsewhere, both in monies raised, in, in institutions built, in schools, and just the flourishing of Judaism there. So there's no question that the youth-based Tammuz, as we always have to look at things ahead, we can't always look at the moment, for all its victory then, the victory only became more apparent as the years went on. Fascinating sikha. You know, there's a lot of sikhas to refer to for you based Tammuz, but we all like to learn something. I would refer you to a sikha, Shabbos Pasha Slach, Mavarch Machidish Tammuz, Tov Shimem Zayin. This is uh, 31 years ago. The Rebbe speaks about Yud based Tammuz very strongly right in the beginning, and so generally a very powerful sikha. It's printed in Sefer HaSikhas, Tov Shimem Zayin, volume 2, page 440 and on. So even if you can't get through the whole sikha, but definitely the first, um, I would say the first few chapters, the first few sections, definitely read. And I, I think it's really an intriguing sikha for everybody and relatively easy to understand in explaining really um, 
What really is the miracle and the redemption of Yudbeis Tammuz? That that Dafka, this one is spelled out as being You could say that about every gula, even the gula of Yitzchak Kislev. The Alter Rebbe didn't say So he goes on to explain how this is a unique in its own way, and he calls it the Chaga Gula the Friedrich Rebbe Moyed Hamoyedim as uh, cited and with all the sources in the Sicha. He also spells out that's a day for Yiliyei Misfadus, a day to create fabrengans, gatherings, v'seiris and uh, inspiration, v'chizuk ha-teir to strengthen Teira and Judaism, v'chol everywhere in every location, l'fi in each place according in Zinyan, v'hesif emez barbotsus Teira v'achzokus ha-yadus. To add intensity, to add strength, to add commitment, to add image uh, is, is strength, power in the spreading of Teira and the strengthening of Yiddishkeit. So this is a beautiful sikha that explains why it's that way. And among the different things that the Rebbe says, that uh, he says, and he cites a sikha here from Yud Beis Thomas Tavshin Chavzayin, which would be two, four, 20, 40 years. 40, 20 years, I'm sorry, before this sikha, where he says that Yeshleim, that the Gula of Yud Beis Tammuz was Psicha Satsinet, opened up the channel for all the Nisim that happened to the Eden in the of the years, also during the time of the war, the Six Day War. So you can imagine how the Rebbe looked at the Yud Beis Tammuz Gula as something that really broke through one of the greatest darkness, dark periods, the Soviet oppression of so many Jews. And the Gula, the mere fact that Frida Kadebe came out unscathed and was able to continue his Aveda, come to all Europe and then ultimately to America and continue building Chabad, which is obviously the growth, everything happening today, would have all stopped had something happened then, as the Rebbe speaks in that Tavshin Chavzai and Sicha, demonstrates that it was the opening of a channel. And very often you don't always see the consequences and the significance and implications of a great event until in, 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 only, you only see it in time. Same thing with Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, though we know how powerful it was, but as the Maral says, it opened up the Tzinner, the channel for being free, truly spiritually free. And this Sikha goes on to explain why and how it applies to us in our times as we prepare for the Gula Amitiz Vashlema and getting out ultimately of Golas, that this would be the final Gula in Golas that would give the strength to ultimately redeem ourselves. Because anything that challenges a Helen Behester, remember, you have to talk about the Soviet Union was a powerhouse of hundreds of millions of people. The power that they wielded. And yet one man, one man they arrested, they could have easily done anything they wanted. And yet they did not, is a sign that the darkest of dark could not withstand the power of Nitzchis, of the eternity of Teir and Mitzvahs that the Friedrich Rebbe represented. And therefore, that gives us power today. Even though you can say we don't have such darkness, but we have our own challenges. We have the challenge today, that was Nidoch and Beret Mitzrayim, the challenge of oppression. Now we have the challenge of prosperity, of comforts and apathy, and all that comes with that. So, that is a short Yud Beis Tammuz message. I want to share one more thing. There's much to talk about, but I've also spoken about it in previous years, and I'll, and I'll send you to uh, cross-reference you to episodes 73 and 169, previous years where I discussed it. But there's something else that came my way that I just felt good to share. 
There's a famous story that everybody thinks is associated with Yudbeis Tammuz. It actually happened six years earlier. The famous story is when, they, when the Friedrich Rebbe would not cooperate, and he stood by his principles in, in the, against his oppressors, and they pointed a gun to him, saying that this has made many people change their principles and cooperate. And Friedrich Rebbe famously said, this toy, this tzatzke, in Yiddish, because that was what he was insisting on doing, speaking Yiddish. This tzatzke, he said, can only frighten someone that has one world and many gods, but not someone that has one god and two worlds. So this is attributed to what happened in Yudbeis Tammuz. The truth is, it happened actually six years earlier, in Tafresh Pei. And I came across this because it's recently been publicized Dr. Nissen, Dr. Rabbi Nissen Mendel's archives, the letter is printed in Nigris Kedish, and I'm going to give you a summation of it in a moment. But the English version of it, and also the background, a little more background, but you can see it from the letter. The letter that I'm referring to, it's a beautiful letter, powerful letter, where it's printed in Nigris Kedish of the Friedrich Rebbe, volume 8. It's dated 27th of Marcheshwin, Tov Shindalad, 19... Uh, 43, that would be. And it's on page 59, Nuntes. So volume 8, the Nigus Kedush of the Friedrich Rebbe, page 59. The Friedrich Rebbe is referring to Dr. Mendel. He's telling, they were talking about a, a class that was being given at the time in Manhattan, actually in a book called The Bible Unauthorized, which is a discussion we should have at another time. People have asked me questions about it. I'll give you some background another time. But for now, that's not relevant to our discussion. But that was the class was in that Bible Unauthorized which was like a scientific, somewhat of a contemporary scientific take on biblical science, so to speak, on the creation. And the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe asked the Rebbe whether it's a book that can be used, and the Rebbe gave so-called an endorsement, even though with some qualifications. So there was a class going on. Friedrich Rebbe, of course, was interested in knowing about the class, the details, who comes to the class. The Friedrich, okay. And then the class was marked by a man called Cowan, that was leading the class. Dr. Mendel wrote to the Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe, that, or told the Friedrich Rebbe that the class was going well, but it was somewhat dry. So the Friedrich Rebbe said, that the discussion, they should also, at least uh, briefly, present something like in a form of a, letter, of a, form of a story. And then the Friedrich Rebbe goes on and says, I'm going to give you something that's from my memories, that's uh, engraved, etched in my memory, that happened to me in the summer of Tafresh Pei. Tafresh Pei, remember, is 1920. Summer of Tafresh Pei, we're talking about the year the Rebbe Rashab was nostalgic, the year the Friedrich Rebbe became Rebbe. He says where he was called, summoned to come to the Cheka. The Cheka was the, the NKVD wasn't existent yet. A shame of, the Friedrich Rebbe says, the Gimel Pei Aleph, which was the NKVD, didn't exist yet. Later it would be called the, G, the KGB. And he was summoned to come to them in Rostov. It's called Rostov on the Don, on the Don River. And it was done also, not just the Cheka, but came with the Efsexia, which was the Jewish section. The Jewish that were in many ways even more rabid anti-Semites. They came... He writes, he was middle of the, he was clo- close to finishing Shachris. Remember, he was diving for the Omid of Friedrich Rebbe. So they came, and they wanted to arrest him. They came over to him while he was davening, leading the davening. And uh, he said, he pointed them, he wants to finish davening first. 
the two Jewish sects here were ready to force him to go. That he says there was a non-Jew, and the non-Jew convinced them to let me finish davening. So I finished davening. When I finished davening, they were all armed with all this. I'm not going to go all the details. You can read it yourself. And they took me, the two Jews and the guy and the non-Jew, they took me to their to interrogate me with all the fear and sitting at a table with 15 people and with the guns and the knives. Describes it all in graphic detail. So after I took off my talus and tefillin and so on, I, they escorted me in this intimidating way to try to make a point. And there I was sitting with them and they began asking me questions. They said they want to ask me questions about, they've asked questions to other rabbis about Judaism, but they want to ask me some questions about what he calls his medicis, in Kabbalah and Chassidus, being that he's a Hasidic Rebbe. And they were all speaking in Russian. The Friedrich Rebbe says, I responded in Yiddish. And I said that I do not want to compromise my principles. And one of the principles is that I'm, I'm going to speak only in Yiddish, especially considering that there are Jews sitting here. That's when the story with the gun, where one of them pulls out, picked up a gun that was on the table, and, and he said to them, and he said that this tzatzua, this uh, tzatzua, tzatzka, this toy, has met, changed many people's, take, removed many people's principles and caused many people to open, asylum people to open their mouths. Friedrich Rebbe respond, responded, this, can only, this toy can only Im- impact someone who doesn't have faith, the weak of heart. They have only one, God, one world and many gods. And here is, Ein Welt und Asach Geter. These are the words. Kol Baltaiva Yeshleyelikov. Every Baltaiva has his God. But Anachnu, we, who have only one God, and we believe in two worlds, this toy not only will not frighten me, but doesn't even make an impact on me. It's the exact language. Now, though it's, we always hear this about Yudbeis Thomas, remember this story, you could say, is the beginning of the events of Yudbeis Thomas because they're already intimidating and trying to, uh, trying to get the Friedrich Rebbe to uh, acquiesce to their wants and their interests. And then regarding the Jewish thing, they said to him, how do you know since you mentioned that we're Jews, that some of us are Jews? So he said... Um, maybe I made a mistake, and not all of you are Jews, but my grandfather, the Rebbe Marash, would recognize, always recognize a Jew. He once saw a Jew walking in the street who was all dressed in modern garments, and he, and he greeted him, and the man said, how did you know I was a Jew? So he said, because... This is what he says. That Bishaz the Bris of a Jew, the Moyal removes the piece and puts it on the person's nose. That's how he recognizes the Jew. Friedrich Rebbe says, I don't know if I can recognize this, voice, this uh, sign, but I believe I'm not mistaken. Then they asked him this question. First question he says they asked him is, you de- you're committed completely in every detail, in every iota to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism. You sit with a yarmulke, you have a garment with tzitzis, and also all the, all the details of Judaism. Is this due to your diemuchletis? Is because you're absolutely sure and you're knowing that this is right? Ibertzaigung means you're convinced, absolute conviction. Or it's due to a munavirigil, it's due to faith and your uh, habit, your routine. He, the Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe says, I answered, diemuchletis. Absolute, know that this is absolutely convinced that this is right with your dia. 
So then they said, if that's the case, that you sort of, since you're convinced, convince us also. So the Friedrich goes on and says to them, I'm happy to do that. But you know how it works in these things. If you go, to, for example, to someone to learn astronomy, you meet them in the street, and one of the study astronomy says, the astronomer will say, come with me into a planetarium where I have all the equipment, and I'll show you a telescope, and you'll use it so you'll learn astronomy. I can't just talk to you in the street. Same thing here. Come with me. Starts, he says, you want to know the Yudim HaIbert Saigung in the Das Alekim and the Tera, come with me to a Beis Alekim, to a shul, put on film, eat kosher, keep Shabbos, and your minds and hearts will be refined. You'll be able to understand this, and slowly, slowly you'll grow until you come to this Hakkara Sichlis. You recognize with your Seichel until you come to Ibrit Saigung, Yedia Mukhlatas, in, in the Dasat Lakim, in the divine religion, and the Tera. So they continued and said, No, first give us some reasons why we should do it. So here the Friedrich Rebbe continues when he gives the final Moshal. He says, When you eat something, we know eating is necessary for a person's health. You don't ask a question, first prove to us that eating is helpful, and then I'll eat. You eat, and then well, I'll explain it, using essentially the same argument as well. I mean, the Friedrich Rebbe says this made a big ration on them, and this is um, what he told Dr. Mendel in this letter to share in the class in Manhattan to spice it up a bit, not using those words, to make it a little more moist, as we say, lachluchis. So I thought it was appropriate to read, even though there are many, many things about Yud Beis Tammuz, you see the take of the Friedrich Rebbe, and as I said, even though it happened six years earlier, but it's the same, pres- the same presence and the same intensity and the same unwavering conviction. So, see this applied, and Yud Beis Tammuz just shares some things from points I have not discussed in the past, and some things that you may find of interest or find even uh, some of you may not have heard all these stories, but I just read it accurately straight from the Igris Kedish, so straight from the source, it's not hearsay at all in any particular way. The lesson to this to us is quite obvious, going back to what I said before. Yud Beis Tammuz is a celebration of the power of commitment, the celebration of the power of Judaism, of Teirah and Mitzvahs, and the celebration of the power that when you are committed to that, nothing can stop you. And even though the odds were against the Friedrich Rebbe, and no one knew what could happen. He prevailed and gives us the power. So it's a gu'ul, not just for him, not just for myself, as he says, but for all of us to do the same and have gu'ul in our own golas pnimi, because today the golas is mostly internally, our own apathy, our own laziness, our own distractions, our materialistic involvements to recognize that we can break through and actually bring the Geula as the Rebbe speaks in that So, let us go from this to, we're also in the week of Parsha Bolok, and this coming Shabbos will also be Shavasa Betamas. Shir doesn't come. It'll be the fast, however, will be on Sunday, because it's a, a Tainus Nitzche, because Shabbos is Deich of the Tainus. So we're going to speak about this next Sunday, Either way, even if it's Yehob Chiyom Mel, Yitzhak Simcha, with the Mashiach's coming, with Geula, there's also, we'll talk about the Simcha and the Yontif of it. That is, if they'll allow me to continue this program after Mashiach comes. I should add that qualification. But I'm so far planning on it. I don't see why not. It's part of Chassidus, so. Um, 
But being that it is this Shabbos and it's Pashabalik, let me share one or two words about that. The Rebbe speaks in a number of sikhs that Yud based Tam is like Magdim Rafula Maka. What is Shivasar Batamus? Also, yet another hell on the Hester. It was the day when the wall was breached, Nifka Ir. The wall, which wall? The wall around Jerusalem was breached. And unfortunately, three weeks later, would lead to Tishabov and the destruction of the base by and by According to some opinions, both Bayesian and Bayesian was on Shivasar, the time is the breaching of the wall. There are other opinions that it was on a different day. On Testam was a different day. However, Tishabov, everyone agrees that the destruction on both temples was on Tishabov. But as far as uh, the Shivasar Batamas, there are some opinions like that too. It's brought in the Rebbe Sichas. Now, what is the significance of Uvkir? It's another, another tragic event. As the Mishnah says, five sad events happened on the 17th of Tammuz. One of them is the breaching of the wall. The Rebbe explains breaching of the wall is the breaching of the siyog, also siyog letera, the wall that each of us has to make around our commitments. For a commitment to be healthy, you also need to have an environment and you need to have, make sure you have precautions, precautionary measures, which is what you do in any given situation. You don't wait till the last minute. You protect yourself. You build a wall around your life. And the breaching of the wall is the beginning of the breach of, of the, those, those factors that protect us. So it's another goal. And yet, we understand that the whole purpose of it is as the Rambam says, that it should be transformed. Transformed to a breach that's a mile like Mashiach comes, it says, Yerushalayim will sit with open walls. And I will be for you a wall of fire. Today we need walls because we need to protect from the enemy. But then there will be open walls, and that's the transformation of the walls that we create today will be transformed to a wall of fire, which is a positive wall. A wall of fire, not a wall that separates, but a wall that connects. Pasha Bolok is the same theme again. It's Hapche. Like Yud based Tammuz transformed the darkest to light. What's Bolok? Bolok commissioned Bilam to curse the Jews, and the curses become blessings. The greatest blessings, Matevo Alech Yaakov, Mishkanesech Yisrael, and all the other blessings. It's actually the, one of the places that the Rambam says that actually allude to Asherenu Vlayato, Asherenu Vlayato, Asherenu which is all about the the Haftochis, the prophecy about the Gula Mitis Vashlem, as the Rambam brings in Perik in chapter 11 in Hilchas Malachim. So, what, where did it come from? It came from the enemy. What gave you based Thomas to us the Gula? Also from the enemy. So as we know, as Chassidus explains, there's no such thing as just vanquishing and overcoming darkness. You transform it. Everything becomes a springboard that catapults you to greater heights. This is both personally, psychologically, emotionally, that any challenge we have, any difficulty, any darkness, is only to, proceeds and leads us to a greater light. The theme of all these days, Yud Beis Tammuz, Shavasar Betamuz, and Pasha Bolok, transformation. There are times when we celebrate light. There are times when we celebrate the light that comes from the darker places. And each one of us, I'm sure, can identify with it. We should only have a minimal of darkness, but anything that is a challenge, anything that is a setback, anything that seems to be an impediment, recognize, and we learn from all these different events and so many others, that they're meant to be bring out stronger powers and stronger strengths from within us. In the Sikh and Tav Shemem Zayin, he brings 
from the letters that the Friedrich Rebbe wrote that um, that Yudbeis Talmud will bring an efficient craft, will bring a fresh new approach, a fresh new method in the Ebik and Chizuk Hayadus. And he even said about Chizuk, yet with Tzukum and Afula Nights, Yudim and the Tifa Gedichte and Yonim from Chizuk. That Yudbeis Talmud will come, similar to what we say about Yudas Gislev, that through that began the Iker of Yifutz Menesach and Chutzah, that will come Nayat Tziyurim, new Tziyurim is new images, new pictures, new uh, visions of the deep and heavy topics in Chassidus. And what do we see happening? Exactly that. Some of the deepest Chassidus, Tafresh Tzadik Dalad, the Hemshech Tzadik Dalad came a few years later. And of course, the Maimorim that, before that, Maimorim after, and of course, in Rashvi, the Rebbe continuing and accumulating upon all that and building upon that, talking about levels that were never talked about in Chassidus in such a revealed way. Gili Ha'atzmus, Ke'ech Ha'atzmus, and all the chidushim of the Rebbe in the highest levels of Elikus, as I said, were not discussed at least that openly until later and became more and more apparent, more and more revealed and more and more chidushim as the time passed. All due to what? To the setback, or you can say the hell and the darkness that led to all this great revelation. Okay. Some cross-referencing uh, for 17th of Tammuz, seven, episode 74 and 170. For, Bol- for Bolok, 70 episodes, 73 and 123. So let me just use this opportunity. We have a very rich archive that continues to grow and build of My Life episodes. We're now in 218. So if you go to meaningfullife.com slash mylife, you find all the previous archives. You also find the forum where you can ask any question, literally any question, completely anonymously and confidentially. No one knows who you are, what you are. You can write anything you like. And if you want to have a response or you want to ask for some material that we need to send you, just include in that box your email address because that's the only way we can connect, we can respond to you. There's also an opportunity to tell you that this class is, which plenty of energy and effort and um, time goes into this and nothing comes, uh, we know we live in a world where you need to cover expenses. So I invite you and request and uh, kindly request you consider contributing, helping, supporting the program by uh, making your contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. At MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship, where you can sponsor and dedicate a, a program or a series of programs to a loved one, to the honor of a loved one, or the memory of a loved one. It can also be used to promote your um, organizations or businesses, anything you feel you see fit. Okay. With that, let us go to a few questions that some of them are an outgrowth of previous weeks. Some of them are new. Let's start with, should we use the Ziyah title on the Rebbe? Ziyah is Chusi Yogan Aleinu, and of course it comes with many more titles, etc., so here's where the writer writes. This is what the writer writes. There was a sign in front of 770 about a psaq given by Chabad Rabbonim, Rabbi Marlo, Oliver Sholem, and others, not to write Ziyah and the Rebbe. What's your take on this? We see that Kohos and Lahak do write Ziyah, and, and there are others that don't. Is there a reason? Is, and their reason. And their reason is to not write, to write it is not to make a chil Rebbe, Rahman We see that the Rebbe wrote such titles on the Friedrich Rebbe. Yes, we do. After Tav Shin Yud. So, 
firstly, I, as I always point out, I'm not a Rav, and I'm not going to paskin on this if, it's a, if it is even indeed something that needs a psak. I would suggest everybody speak to their Rav, as the Rebbe said, that uh, we speak to Rabbonim about these things, Ramashpim, whoever you see fit. We know there's a raging disagreement about this matter. I have taken a position on this matter is that since I don't have direct directives, I don't need to be the person that's the Pesach Achen. I don't have to be the one that rules. I understand both sides of the coin, so to speak, both sides of the argument. I could see emotionally why many people have difficulty writing it because it's not their feeling. Their feeling is the Rebbe lives on in their own hearts and souls and lives on through the Mazari B'chaim, Afu B'chaim, they have the Sikhs from Tov Shinyud, where the Rebbe said he's happy that some people don't give these titles. But yet at the same time, the Rebbe himself did publish the Maimorim and the Sikhs with the titles. So there's two sides to it, and I, I don't think it's a matter that needs to become a Machlekas for sure, not God forbid. That for sure, that I can tell you, there are no two sides to that. There's only one side. We cannot have disagreements. I am of the opinion, live and let live. Everybody should do as they see fit. You know, I don't know if anybody can make a policy because we are living in strange times. I mean, you could take the directives from how things were published after Tafshin Yud. So if you're in the publishing world, maybe the responsibility is to do that. But you know, in the case of, for example, my own work, and I also worked in publishing, so I worked in writing the Fabringens over the years. I was able to write for the Fabringens from Tafshin Mem till Tafshin on Beis when the Rebbe had sadly the stroke. So there, of course, every Sharblat and the Sikhs and everything I worked on was printed, being that I am not writing now any further Sikhs until the Rebbe speaks again. So from my point of view, when that's reprinted, you don't have to add not this title, not that title, just you're reprinting a Sikh that was said uh, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. So if it's a Sikh from, let's say, Shabbos Parshas, uh, we spoke about Shlach Tov Shemem Zayin, it's a Sikh from the Rebbe. There's no reason from my point of view to change anything. Because the sikh is not a new sikh, it's a sikh being printed from then. So that's one of the ways I just avoid it, not because I'm trying to be safe or trying to dance, the uh, as they say, because the, frankly, I don't believe that this should be the ikir of our Aveda today. The ikir Aveda is your futsamayin to do everything possible to bring the gu'ula. This is, those that need to make such a decision, let them consult, and hopefully they do with their mashpim to be objective, it shouldn't be political. I, as I said, don't need to really be involved in such a decision. So that's my position on the matter. Um, since the question was asked, I didn't want to shy away from it. But frankly, it's not something that I really can comment on besides what I've just said. As I said, I could understand the feelings. I could also understand the basis if you're in a responsible publishing world. The, you know, you need to write something. And uh, I don't believe in extremes. So therefore... I believe always take the moderate approach, and moderate approach in this case, unless you have a direct directive. Now, it's true. It could very well be how the world sees it. If you print something that does not have this, uh, this ya in it or so on, they'll say, they'll be accused that you think that the Rebbe is alive. Begashmi is like the other team. But as the, like the other team I said, sadly, I called it a team. I meant to say the other people. So is that the reason we make decisions based on what people are going to say? On the other hand, as I said, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe did print it that way, even though he said the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe lives on in himself and in the Tenue and the movement and so on. So I'm re-repeating myself. I just wanted to make it clear that this is not something I believe should be a big argument or an argument at all. And everyone in their position should do what they have to do. That's my take on the matter. 
And uh, as I said, we can always consult just to stay objective with Rabonim, with Mashpiim, with people we can trust and we can t- talk to who look at it hopefully in a balanced way. Of course, I'm sure I'm going to get comments on this. So please, let me tell you again where to send them um, at meaningfullife.com slash mylife. And, uh, and I will definitely follow up if people write and comment on what their comments are. Feel free to agree or disagree. I am a believer that we, I'd love to be able to hear everybody's opinion as long as we keep it um, uh, decent, civil, and in a way that's not personal and not emotional and just really just focus on what the Rebbe told us and to the Rebbe's kavona. That to me is the main thing. And I repeat again, the ikir is my superpower, what we do. Not the words we write, not the words we use, what we do. You want the Rebbe to live on, the Rebbe lives on through our actions and through our Veda, the things that he told us to do, the Hiras and the Tehras that the Rebbe gave us to perpetuate his work in this world. Okay. With that, let us move to... Hmm. Okay, a contemporary current event issue. <laughs> I, I, okay. I usually avoid these for many good reasons, as I'll explain. But being that it's been brought to the table, maybe it's a good opportunity to explain to you why I avoid it. Okay, but as I said, I never censor anything. If questions come in, unless they're absolutely, you know, completely offensive or something. As you know, I almost make no limits, even though I try to express it in refined ways and doesn't always have to be as explicit and as, um, as, uh, as uh, unrefined as it's sometimes presented in writing by some. So here's the question. What are your thoughts about the border and immigration debate? Should children be separated from their parents? Please, Rabbi Jacobson, write or speak about the value of compassion. Separation of children from parents is never a Jewish value. Borders are not. My heart is broken. I need your wisdom to share with my community. My rabbi respects you. Thank you. Okay. The reason I avoid this is not because I avoid discussing controversial topics. Those of you who listen to this know that's not my issue. The issue or the reason I avoid it is because it's so emotionally fraught with so many distortions, became so political that whatever you say, you cannot win because, when I say win, I'm not trying to win, but you can't get across the point because people simply are locked into their thing and a lot of brainwashing going on in the media about all these topics. So I'll just use a scenario. Someone comes over to me, and I have no clue what's going on with the debates between the Democrats and the Republicans, between Trump and the opposing party about border control and immigration control and the separation of families and so on. I'm coming off a boat or off a plane. I have no clue. Someone comes over to me and says to me, is it a good thing to separate children from parents? Well, of course, what kind of answers the question is that? Obviously, the answer is no. It's not a good thing. Everyone, every normal person understands that parents, children need their parents and parents nurture children. But, but someone to say a question like that to me regarding this, I would say is quite uh, loaded and quite misleading and actually even manipulative. Because let's not take, let's forget about border and immigration. Let's say someone would then go on and say, you know what? He goes to court and says, Rabbi Jacobson said, you cannot ever separate children from parents. So therefore, even though I murdered someone, even though I'm smuggling drugs, even though I'm doing all kinds of criminal activities, but I have children. And you bring the children to court and you show it to the judge and say, compassion. And what do you think the judge will say? Why didn't you think about that before you did the crime? Of course, if someone's going to prison and that's the law of the land or some other thing, the children are not going to prison with you. 
So such a question asked without context is really not fair. That's the first point to be made. However, because we live in a media circus, and, and I would say it's even a, it borders on entertainment and titillation and all the other sensationalism that comes that's necessary. So it's, it's phrased in that way, which really puts you in a corner. It's like saying, is it good to beat your wife? Of course it's not. And there, actually, there's no exceptions. Or like someone says, is it, is it, do you beat your wife with a chain or with a bat? God forbid. I'm just using some uh, atro- uh, uh, atrocious uh, example just to make the point. These are called loaded questions that are really going to take us nowhere. Now, of course, of course, some will say answers are very logical. You're talking about drugs, murder, or other crimes. But here you're talking about someone came over the border. You have to separate them from their children. So fine, that's a very good debate, a question. What do you do with people who come over the border? What's the process? And let's say they come with children. So there you have to sit down and figure out the laws. Why is this a Trump issue, anti-Trump or pro-Trump? Now, I know some people hearing what I'm going to say now will say, definitely pro-Trump, can't listen to him. He's off his mind. But I'm not off my mind, and I'm not pro-Trump. I'm not talking about Trump here. I'm talking about the issues. That's why this is so difficult to talk about, because to talk intelligently, you need to have people who don't have any preconceived notions. And there's no notions here at all. I don't know what the immigration policy should be for a country. Do you have a quota? Let's say somebody comes to the border. Someone comes to Ellis Island with a whole family of children. They're escaping from another country. I would assume case by case. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the legalities. I don't even know. It's not even the discussion, frankly. Whatever I'm hearing has nothing to do with that. It becomes separate. Of course not separating. So basically tell the parents and children, why don't you go back where you came from? Or if there's good enough reason, you let them in. And I agree to be able to... Of course we don't like parents separated from children. But if a person is doing actually a criminal act, and again, I'm not saying a a legal immigrant, an illegal alien should be treated just like a murderer. I'm not suggesting that at all. But that comes down to laws and rules. Why can't there be a civil conversation? That I have no clue. The answer is, no, I do have a clue. Because people want power. People have a lot of hatred, one way or the other. They're either locked to very strong right wing, strong left wing, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, with absolutely no normal civil conversation that's based on intelligence. Now, I know this is the platform to speak about it. Somewhat, yeah, because a lot of you listening to this are also caught up. We all are caught up in the hoopla and this whole business. So I thought it may be smart to just sit down and talk a little smart, talk a little common sense, a little intelligent approach, which doesn't need actually any rocket science. It's just an intelligent approach. So, of course, the answer is compassion. Children and parents, every week I speak about this. That what? That children should be nurtured by parents. Where are the people talking about child abuse? What about in this country? Forget about immigrants. How are children being treated by parents in our country? How are they being treated in their schools? Are we nurturing our children? Are we actually bringing out the best in our children? Or are we too busy? So if you really want to talk about children and parents... There's a lot to talk about. And I'm not deflecting the issue. But this is a great topic to jump on. Maybe it's election-oriented. Maybe who wants to be in power. Maybe it's going to be used as a, a how it's spinned, which is what I don't want to address. It's not my business to address that, except in the context. Don't get caught up in all of this. Don't get caught up in any position one way or the other. Because it has nothing to do with the positions. You want to talk about a subject matter on its own merits? By all means. So that's why I made an exception here to address this because there's other topics that come up. I get questions like this. 
I try to avoid ones that are very political. But sometimes, from time to time, it's important to talk about. And one thing has nothing to do with the other. To talk about children and parents is a own discussion. Everything else is a different discussion. Immigration is another one. Border is another one. And that's how you have to really address it. Divide and conquer and speak on the merits. And talk about all the factors. Don't just talk, take a half a story and, and throw it out there and ask a question. Which, of course, is loaded. As I said, could even be manipulative. So I hope I address that in some decent, normal way. Okay, moving on, completely unrelated to another question altogether. And that is, the question is, let's see here. Mm-hmm. How to trust and become a tougher person. Okay, I look forward to your classes each week as they give me a spiritual dose of inspiration. One of the most difficult challenges for me is trust. This is for several reasons. There are too many to enumerate here. I feel that my failure to trust others at times has been an obstacle in building long-term relationships. As an example, I find it very difficult to believe someone when they say nice things about me. I wonder why they are purposely sugarcoating their words, or maybe they don't want to hurt me. I also feel that this lack of betochen, trust, is somewhat reflected in my relationship with God. Sometimes where I feel like I am progressing, I want, sometimes when I, where I feel like I am progressing, I wonder when I will be facing my next curveball. How will I get up when I am down? Will I indeed get up at all? These negative thought patterns damage my already worn self-esteem. My father always tells me that I need a thick skin that won't be penetrated by the slings and arrows directed at me. Till this day, I have no idea where to acquire to find the thick skin to hop into. Maybe Macy sells one that is custom-made for me. I really don't know. My question is, I am now 40 years young. How do I build a strategy that will make me a tougher person? Okay, good. So first of all, let me refer you to episodes 47 and 103, where I spoke a bit about the topic of trust building trust and earning trust and growing, learning how to become more trusting of others. But I also, last week, actually, I don't know if this may be your note is in regard to that, but last week, besides the Sunday night program, as I've mentioned a number of times, I do a weekly, what we call global masterclass. Last week, how to earn trust was the topic. All you got to do is go to our website, meaningfullife.com, write and type in how to earn trust, or you can do it through Google. And you'll find an entire video of close to an hour where I discuss this at length. I'm sure it'll be helpful to your question. I will still respond, but I just wanted to refer you to some more elaboration which can help the, you and others that may have similar questions. As always, it's not easy to answer this, not in person, without knowing all the details, without knowing all the background. But there are some general principles that we all have to know. Obviously, people growing up in trusting environments are the ones that trust most. You grow up in a home where you can trust your parents. Things were consistent, reliable. You were secure and felt secure and felt loved. That means your trust was cultivated and you are more trusting. doesn't mean you're more naive. It just means you just allow that trust to enter your life. You have self-confidence. You don't have to constantly protect yourself. You're not always looking over your shoulder. And when people give you a compliment, you take it for what it is. Unfortunately, when we grow up in environments that undermine us and our self-esteem, environments that are shaky, unreliable, insecure, 
So we become fearful, and we become fearful, we're less trusting. It's like if you walk down a street that you've walked your whole life, and you know it's a very safe street, you're going to walk very calmly. If you walk down a street that's dark and foreboding, and you know the crimes have happened, or you're of a doubt maybe they've happened, how are you going to walk? You're going to tremble. Walk, look over your shoulder, constantly wonder what's going on. So the, we have to look at the root of every issue. So how do you compensate for, a, for walking down such streets, for growing up in environments that, you have, that have attacked you or you felt hurt and so on? The answer is you have to find healthy trust outlets. You have to find people you trust. Some people find it in marriage. Some people find it in their own family. And some people find it in God. And it's not a either or. I would say they all come together. Betochen Hashem, trust in God, helps you trust others. Now, trusting others doesn't mean, again, naivete, you put down, you let down your guard. That is not necessarily the right way. Because you could be hurt. Especially if someone was hurt, you can rest assured that they are going to put up their armor and their defense mechanisms. But you don't want to lock yourself off to the point, talk about walls. We talked about the breach of the wall. Breach of a wall is a breach of trust. But some people, once the wall was breached around them, what they do is they put up such heavy, such thick walls without doors, no one can get in, but no one can get out. And you remain isolated without relationships. So what's a healthy wall? A healthy wall is protecting yourself, but a wall has gates. You look at the wall around Jerusalem, there's Shayafa, there's Shatzian. What is gates? Gates mean there are places where you could enter. So in our lives, the same is true. As a matter of fact, as Shashif Zekayin, Allah Teda says, and the Pasuk, Shaftin Veshaitin Titl Lechabachol Sharecha, you shall appoint in all your municipalities, in all your gates, you shall appoint Shaftin Veshaitin, police, I'm sorry, judges and law enforcers. So he explains what are the gates, Sharecha, why gates? Because at the gates, the gates are the seven gates that every human being has two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and a mouth. That's how things go in, and that's how things go out. So we need a wall. Our entire body is a wall. Think of our skin, our bones. They protect from infection and so on. But to interact with the world around you, you need gates. So how do you build trusting gates? By having trusting relationships. And that could begin with God, with God himself. Begin with people who are godly and refined. And you build it slowly. As you build it slowly, your trust begins to build. And your skin becomes thicker. Not in the sense thicker... It's thick enough to protect itself, but thicker as in the sense you're confident enough. So someone hurls an insult. You know it's not about you, it's their problem. Now, the myth, this is, all sounds great on paper. In actuality, it's harder to do, but that's why we say every morning, and we say the different brachas and, and uh, fillers that talk about betochen, about trusting God, about entrusting God with your life. And these are all tools to help us build security in this insecure world. So everybody can build such security because no matter who you are, no matter what age, no matter what kind of experiences you've had, you can always begin today because you have enough going with, for you. Beginning with your etzem neshama, the soul that you were given. Neshama shenesata What's more secure and safe than that? Build upon that. Do things that accentuate it, that fan the flames of your soul. Ashir and Teira, doing a mitzvah, helping another. That's a tremendous tool. When you help others, you suddenly see your value. You see how others appreciate you. 
That's validation. That builds trust. That builds strength. That builds self-confidence. These are the few things I would throw into the picture. And uh, please follow up with me if uh, you'd like me to discuss this further. Next question. Is it acceptable to read quality secular books or must we resign ourselves to Jewish books of poor literary quality? As someone who appreciates the art of the written word and, is also, and, and who is also careful about what enters his mind, there's almost a conflict. Once a concept enters the mind, it stays there forever. We can agree or disagree with the idea, but we cannot remove it from our memory. As such, it can be dangerous to read books Particularly, particularly fiction, written by authors who don't share our perspective. Foreign matter may become lodged in our brain, even subtly altering our beliefs. Were well-written Jewish books in great abundance? This would be a statement, not a question. Alas, Jewish nonfiction ranges from passable to devaluing the paper on which it is printed. This doesn't satisfy readers who seek to partake, to partake of literary beauty. Neither does it pave the way for well-written Jewish books, as authors don't expose themselves to pieces of beauty. They can't write to a higher standard because authors aren't acquainted with a higher standard. Is it acceptable to read books authored by Jews or anyone not sharing our perspective, or must we resign ourselves to literacy literacy of poor quality? Good, thank you. Excellent question. I first want to refer you to some cross-referencing. I've talked about secular books in episodes 202, 203, 209, and episodes 23 through 27 about secular education, which uh, overlaps with some of the subjects that I'm going to be sharing now. So what I say now is complementing that which was discussed back then. In a way, you can say the end of chapter 8 of Tanya is addresses this, where he speaks about how it affects a person more than other inappropriate um, behavior or actions because it goes into the mind. literally means external wisdom, the wisdom of uh, even the sciences, and definitely things that you're mentioning, fiction and so on. That it defiles the Chabad Shabbat because it's because the mind... You know, if someone, for example, does something with their hands inappropriate or they do something that only affects the action, it's also a problem and has its own liabilities. But when it affects the mind, as you're describing, that's what he really, you know, when, you, when you're reading this, that's what, it, it, um, it's reminiscent of the Alter Rebbe's words there. And yet he says, and as I discussed in those episodes at length, episodes at length that you can use those chachmas, kardem or to use it, what you can learn for Avedis Hashem, the things you learn from those things that you read there or study there. Kardem would be like a, an axe that's made out of it, which means you use it for parnasa purposes. In other words, directing it l'shem shamayim. Because then, what you're doing then is redeeming the ideas by directing them towards something that is holy. Now, the question is, is this something for everybody? No, absolutely not. And definitely not every age. But people who have a chush in writing, for example, or like to read. So, of course, we would like to direct our children only to read holy things. Unfortunately, we live in a world where they're going to be exposed and may be exposed to other things. If you can keep them avoiding from it, keep them away from it, by all means. But it's going to be very difficult for a voracious reader 
or even an average reader, to just be told, don't read this. You can do that when they're children. That I did read. I read books that were not only pure Kedushans and, uh, and Elokus. And wasn't coming from any holy place. I say it was curiosity or my just interest in reading. In my case, I can say I definitely have learned from it and it's helped me be a better writer in describing things. And uh, was it Metama my Chabad? It depends how you look at it. You could say, I can't be, I'm not objective, I can't really answer that. I can just say is that I don't feel that I'm influenced by those ideas, even though I know them. I do feel that I use what I've learned, both language, expression, how to visualize something, how to describe something, and use it in the work I do today, which is trying to bring chassidus to the masses, bring chassidus and make it applied to personal life. But, I, but again, that was me. So I don't know if this is a black and white thing you can just answer. If you're a person that seems to love the art written word, it's going to be very hard to just avoid, just like a person who loves music. And I would say that maybe our shlichus, people who are part of the world of the written word, our shlichus is not just to read it and to enjoy it, it's actually maybe to create higher standards that Jewish books should be written in a much higher caliber. Why should we surrender and say literature should only be, the good literature should only be in the domain of those that are outside of the Torah world? By all means, use it. Become a great writer. So I would challenge you in return, why don't you write a book of high caliber um, literacy value that's in the Jewish realm? Because I agree. To me, it's also a chil Hashem in a way. Because if Teda cannot be expressed in ways that are quality, then you read it, you always see it's a little shabby compared to its counterparts, L'Havdal in the secular world, then you say to yourself, where's the quality? Where's the, the standards? Why don't we have those higher standards? Now, we all know Teichen-wise, content-wise, Teda is up there in the highest of levels. If you know Gemara, Mishnais, or you learn other Sfarim, Farshim, I mean, Jews are the people of the book. Literature is what we created, scholarship. But it's an original Hebrew, or whatever language it was written, mostly inaccessible to the masses. Imagine if someone can take that and turn that into a tremendous English translation that is a classic Writing, besides the content being so good, that would be a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. That would be a perfect example of Kardim Lachterbe, or even more that it's being used for a Vedus Hashem. So I have to say in these type of things, it's very hard to be black and white. Black and white, yes, the, the Tanya says what it says, what's Metam and Chabad, but he gives the exceptions, and those exceptions are actually doable. So I would approach it with that way, with those exceptions in mind, and applying it to each person according to their way. So I do not think one has to compromise. I think we could enter the world and look at it as a challenge to actually start writing books of that level and that caliber. So in answer to your question, is it acceptable to read quality secular books? I, for one, cannot tell you it's acceptable because of the reasons I've given you. But practically speaking, you're probably going to read it anyway, even if I don't say it's acceptable because it's quality. It's a better quality book. And in the secular world itself, there are books that are obviously more refined than others. So obviously I would stick to the things that are more edel, more refined. And, but most importantly, make sure to use it, L'shem Shemaim, if you're going to do it. But I'm not a, I'm not a Rav, and I'm not going to pass on something like this from a Chesidish point of view. We all know the attitude to reading secular books would be it's, uh, uh, unacceptable. But at the same time, I'm being practical and addressing it and realistically in ways that people can do something with it and not just say, okay, it's off limits, then what? So I'm stuck now. Okay. 
Let's do two follow-ups, and then we'll do the Chassidus question and the essays. The follow-ups is one, someone writes, I spoke about in episodes 216, 217, Gimel Tammuz, someone wrote about why, the docu- why is it not documenting the events that happened in Gimel Tammuz. So one person writes that a Rabbi Zalman Heber wrote up a report of what he saw and experienced by Gimel Tammuz, Tovshin and Dalad. Someone asked about it in episode 216, so I felt it would be good for him to know that. Okay, thank you. Regarding spending Shabbos at the Eil, so here is a comment. In your most recent episode, you referred to episode 44 regarding going to the Eil for Shabbos without getting into personal interpretations, which is as stated against the purpose of the program. I would like to point out that in quoting the sources, you failed to mention that in a letter from the Rebbe Rashab, I don't have books in front of me, so I'm quoting sources from memory and maybe slightly off. Igris, page 603, that he went there, to, he, wanted, he wanted there to be a minion in Hadich, as the Alter Rebbe's seen. Uh, I'll call Ponim on Shabbos and Yontav and the Sefer HaSichas Tov Shin Hei, page 23. The Friedrich Rebbe says how Rajbats would go to the Eil every Yom Kippur and how in general there was a minion by the Eil in Lubavitch every Shabbos and Yontav also in Rabbi Zelikson's Mavteach to Sichas Kedesh. Under the Erech of he brings down the Rebbe saying regarding going on Chalamed that if you are going as a Chosid visiting the Rebbe, then you can go on Chalamed. Point being, I feel you didn't include an important part of the written sources. And also you bring the letter of the Friedrich Rebbe about memorial acts and some are tired and going for the Shabbos, which I feel is a personal interpretation and not a pure quote of sources. As far as that goes, you can use the same, same idea, said idea about Chalamed to differentiate between visiting Kvarim of other tzaddikim, and a chassid visiting his Rebbe, which would alter the entire landscape of this discussion, including the ksav and the luach regarding visiting kfarim of tzaddikim on Shabbos. Now, why the Rebbe didn't do any of the above quoted things by the oil of the Friedrich Rebbe is open to personal interpretation and veers from the written sources. However, as far as the sources go, there's definitely clear sources to going and davening by the oil on Shabbos, leaving much for personal hergation. However, I felt you misrepresented the side of going for Shabbos so far as as far as sources are concerned. Thank you. Well, I read it exactly as is. I believe if you go back to my episode 44 and the other ones that I referred to, I did bring all the sources from all angles. I spoke about the Hadith. I spoke about the Sikh of the Friedrich Rebbe. I don't remember if I did, but thank you for the technical details. I'm not really sure what you're trying to, what point you're trying to make. As I said then, once someone wants to go, I'm not here to tell people what to do. I was talking about sources. Sources about, legitimate sources. These sources are good stories, and you can interpret them as you see fit. And if you feel you're on that level, and that's what you want to do, you know, as I said then. Anyway, no more comment necessary. That's, thank you for that. And let me go now to the Chassidus question. The Chassidus question is two parts. They came in a different time, so I'll, I'm combining them together. Why do we sometimes beautify mitzvahs, and at other times insist on keeping it simple, saying that the mitzvah itself is beautiful without frills? Good example, we have Zel Keli Van Vehu. So the Gemara says, Van Vehu, to beautify it. No. Avshmi Amezuza no, Asefreter no, Tfilin no. We have Priyates Hodor, that's Mamash Aposik, that the, the, the Priyates Hodor should be Hodor. Beautiful, not just plain. And you see many things that when you do a mitzvah, do it with beauty. Min Hamufchar, as the Rambam says, from the best. Not from the weakest and not from the average, from the best, because you want to show a mitzvah with the beautiful. At the same time, you see the idea, for example, Chabad Noi Sukkah, to beautify the sukkah. So the Rebbe writes in a letter to someone, 
Sukkot, because the mitzvah, one, the mitzvah itself, plain and simple, pshittas. So why sometimes the focus on tzior, so to speak, on beauty, and sometimes keeping it simple? You see it also with the piyutim of the Alter Rebbe. They'd been put in most of the piyutim. There's also a certain simplicity to the Nusachat Filah. And same with other matters. Why, why like this sometimes, sometimes like that? Another question, which is related, but a different question. Is a mitzvah itself beauty, or does beauty come from a higher place? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, we know the Chabad concept, as the Rebbe explained it, that by mitzvahs we don't add the different kinds of noya, of beauty. Meaning my sukkah, for example, we don't put out noya sukkah, decorating the sukkah. Rather, the walls themselves, the mitzvah as it is, in its raw and pure form, is the beauty of it. As well as plain esrug boxes and talus without an atorah, a crown. Some talisim have a silver crown on it. I've attached a page of Hemshech Samachvov, page Ayin, Reish Gimel in the old print. In the new print is 364, and the old print is 273. It's a paragraph explaining the whole idea of a keser, a crown. My question is, how do we reconcile this with the idea that the beauty of a mitzvah is the item itself without any extra frills? Please, Rabbi Jacobson. Oh, that's it. Sorry. Sorry. And I believe the underlined part is the most relevant to the question. See below. So here's the Samachvov. He speaks about Sevev, Keser, and that he speaks that a Keser surrounds the head, it's above the head. He says, Kikol Teferis, all beauty, lo yim in etzim love, does not come from the core that's close to him. Kim arachik, that which is distant. Oy ma'ashof or something which much lower. Oy ma'agavoya, or something much higher. V'teferis ha'ateres, u'shagyegbi'enu l'mayla merke. And the beauty of the ateres, of the crown, is that it lifts him up higher than his level. Till the point that he's, proud, he's uh, beautified and elevated by it. And he puts the crown on his head because of its value that's above him. Seeming to contradict the idea that the mitzvah itself is naw. So why do you have to have something higher than you? The makif, so to speak. In the Nimshul, in Ayin Samarvov, he talks, this is Yechidah Shebenefesh, that's not Mestabesh Beguf, and that's the Keser Amiti, that's like a crown above the person. So it sounds like a beauty that surrounds him, that's above him. So it's a very good question. Now it's interesting, the word here is teferis, here the word is noa, noisuka. So teferis says beauty, hoid is also sometimes a word for beauty. So simply put, you could say there's different levels of beauty. And there are things that the beauty itself comes from the thing itself, and there are things that you need to beautify. Like for example, when we say tikunim, on, on the spheres, tikunim is from the word ornaments. And we see there's the concept of ornament, of ornaments, adorning something. In the Mishkin, the Beis Amikdash, we adorn things. And yet in Yom Kippur, Poshut, your big day lovan, bad, linen, pure white, not colors. So the answer is, the language of Chassidus is sometimes we need the Etzem, sometimes we need Giluim. Giluim is Tziur. So sometimes the Etzem of a mitzvah, it's it itself, like schar mitzvah mitzvah. The mitzvah itself is the schar. And that context, you don't need to do anything more. The mitzvah itself. And if you start using externals, you sometimes can be distracted from doing the mitzvah, just a simple mitzvah, tomim tim, Hashem with tmimus, with innocence, with purity. But then there's a time where you want to beautify the mitzvah because you want to show that the mitzvah is so precious to you that you do it in a beautiful way. The question is, when do you do which, which is which? You see sometimes the focus, like, Priyat's harder, clearly, harder. Zekeli van veyu, 
mezuzah no, tefillin no. Like you have their concept, dira no, marchiva daita shloda. No. A dira is necessary to live in. But no makes it beautiful. That expands the mind. So we see that beauty is important in Teir. For example, we see Yifas Teir, Yifas Mare. The, the Imos, the mothers, the matriarchs were complimented for their beauty. If also physical beauty. And then we say, Shekra Achein Vehevla Yefi Kim Yirus Hashem Hittisalo. Shekra Achein Vehevla Yefi. You just said Yefi is, is important. So as the Rebbe explains, Chassidus explains, it's meaning once she has Yiddish Hashem, then the Yiddish Hashem also permeates the beauty. If it's only beauty, then it's hollow, then it's empty, then it's hevel, it's vain. So it's important to remember the key focus is always to remember that the mitzvah itself is the beautiful thing. When you have that in place, then clearly there are times that we beautify. There are times that beauty can be a distraction. I don't know if there's a rule, and I don't know the rule, why in some places it's applied this way and sometimes that way. Like why by noisuka do we focus that the wall should be plain? And by tefillin we make a tefillin no. Or by even a, 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 the esrig box is taken plain, but the esrig itself is beautiful. I'm sure there's an explanation, but I understand the two categories make sense. So what it says in Samarvov, he's talking about a teferes that's coming not from the thing itself, from a higher place, higher giluim, even giluim atzmim, because it's going to yechideh. But it's above the entity itself. So it's immediately like almost like a teferes in Bechines Makif. But then there's a teferes in Bechines Primius, which is the thing itself has its own beauty. See a person doing a mitzvah, even if it's a simple mitzvah, there's a certain simplicity. That itself is beautiful. That's how I would uh, reconcile the two. So what needs more iyun, tzarech which maybe some people can help with this, is why in some cases it's like this. Why, what determines where you apply the naw, where you don't apply the naw. The Rebbe's famous sikh, Chav Beishvat Toshim Emches, the Tovshin Nun Beis, sorry, Tovshin Nun Beis, where he speaks about, the Rebbetzin speaks about Chaya Mushke, that she adds Chayas, and Mushke is a scent, a beautiful aroma, that's the Dira Naw. More than just, a, not just to make a Dira B'Tachtein, but Naw. So clearly there's a, the element of beauty. I would assume that when beauty can be a distraction, like, for example, Yom Kippur, you're going straight to the Etzem. Pure, we don't want colors, we don't want anything, fireworks. But there are times you want to have fireworks, you want to show and demonstrate that it's very colorful and very rainbow-like, and it has all the diversity. Maybe also the Sikh of Shmois Tov Shenchofei can come into here where the Rebbe asked the famous question, or famous, the Rebbe made it, that why does it say, the Baal says, that the Pshittas of Eish Pashut, the simplicity and innocence of a simple person, reaches the innocence and simplicity of Atzmus. Why don't we say that the tziurim and the giluim of giluim, the beauty and the expansiveness and the diversity of giluim, reaches the God of Shleimus of the Kula, the God includes everything. And he answers because giluim at the end of the day, the, the diversity is giluim. Etzem, by definition, is a pshitas dika thing. So it could be when there's giluim that seem to contradict, like for example, Yom Kippur was done quietly. Because by Matan Teira was Kalus of Rakim, so it was with noise created an iron heart. Now it has to be quiet. But the Havimin, what was Hawaii was, didn't we understand that it should be quiet? Because the Abishta took the risk, so to speak, and realized some things have to be done more modestly. So it could be that where there's a situation that can be a distraction, that's when you stick to the simplicity. Where it's not, that's when you beautify it. 
So by tefillin, for example, you have the tefillin. You're not going to be distracted because the tefillin is nicer. In a sukkah, you can get distracted because you're looking at the ribbons and at the decorations and forget about the walls of the sukkah and the beauty of the sukkah itself. So it could be the beauty of like a mezuzah no, or tefillin no, or dirah no, is the house is intact. But you see the additional element, beauty is a complement. It adds to it. It's not in place. The king wears a crown on his head because the king is betiferes. The king already is. Malchus tiferte. His levushim, he dresses like a king. Then you add a crown, so it adds another makivitik and higher power of giluim dika beauty. Perhaps. Okay. Now we'll do the three essays and then we'll conclude. Three essays are essay number one, Self-Worth and Selflessness by Rivka Goldenberg, age 17, Brooklyn, New York. Benos Menachem High School. A captivating tale of gold, dirt, and shipwreck. Talk about people who feel very bad about themselves. Someone describes someone who feels completely like a shmata. And how this essay comes to describe how you can lift yourself out of that and discover self-worth through selflessness, worthiness. She talks about the Mr. Klippa and Gedusha, that why unworthiness comes from an untruth that we are defined by the things we have the people we associate with and the circumstances of our lives, whereas worthiness is when you value the things that you really are, not by things we have and so on and outer circumstances. So anything we define ourselves by from the outside will end up being something that makes us not feel good at the end because it's not really coming honestly from you. And she does it very well juxtaposed with a personal anecdote, a personal story, so to speak. And describing how one builds this type of uh, value. Well done essay. I found it to be very empowering. And I'm sure you will as well. So please check it out. You can find this in the new essays at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. There you'll see all the new essays. As well as by subscribing, we will send you, happy to send you, if you subscribe to us, the new essays as they are posted. So this is a very powerful essay. The conclusion is that in order to lead world wholehearted and healthy lives, according to Torah, self-worth and selflessness are not only able to coexist, but one is a result of the other. When we feel the worthiness of our neshama fully, we cease living solely for ourselves. Yes, very well done. Good sources. Okay. Next day, number two, is Igeris Akedis Simon 11, 11, section 11. Dinush Vogel. Dinush Vogel. Ashkelon, Israel, age 37. So this is really taking chapter 11 and how, in a guess, and how it changed this person's life. Literally, Shinos Chai. And in a very dramatic way, talks about how her dif- the difficulties this person, the author, has experienced in life. And how this Pedic in, in, in Geras which talks about the Sphiris and the inner workings of what defines us and what makes us be who we are actually brings you that type of power to become a far greater person. Just looking here at the end. Yes. Again, very personally done. Here we are. And very well done. A very good applied to this essay. And finally, essay number three, a new era as an ERA. Success, perfection, and the paradox of the human mind. Dovi Paltiel, age 20, Laguna Nuguel, California, a student in the Holotera. 
Of all the bumps on the road of life, what are often the most harmful are also the hardest to detect. In this essay, I intend to address a specific strain of apathy or sense of futility, one that arises from witnessing someone else seemingly through no special effort on their part, achieving much more than oneself. And how you can deal with that and not become just jealous, consumed by jealousy, but how to have a healthy outlook on the struggles of the human experience, which can force to a more wholesome, stable state of mind. So the writer writes, he writes about this, the persistent survival in the human reward system as an introduction. He talks about the pitfalls in the road of life when the brain becomes the brawn. Imperfectly perfect, the dichotomy of human nature and the struggle of life. Flawless versus perfect, the tzaddik and the benani. And, uh, and really does, again, another excellent job. And finally concludes with the ERA, E-R-A. Evaluate, redefine, apply. Evaluate your life, cheshman nefesh, redefine, and apply. I found that to be very practical, very consistent with a lot of the things I teach and speak about. And I thank you for this essay. And again, all the essays can be seen and read. I'm very proud to read, read these essays and seeing the effort that so many good people have made in actually applying Chassidus. And with that, let us conclude, again, good yontif to this Yud Beis, Yud Gimel Tamas. is the essence of all of Chassidus, the essence of all of the Rabbeim, the essence of what Yud Beis Gimel Tamas is about, which as Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov, will bring the Geul HaMittis V'Ashleim HaOsim Adam And the Rebbe explains that Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamas is, is a stepping stone toward that direction, the last great Geula in Golis, the darkest of Golis. So everyone have a very good yontif. A Geula Dike, uh, day, two days, and a cool dick a week, and may we already be zeichet to Yehovchi Yomim Meil L'sosin L'meidim L'sosin L'simcha L'meidim Tevim, the transformation of the seventeenth of Tammuz and the three weeks and the nine days and Tishabov to the greatest Yom Tev Yom Tev. So until next Sunday, this has been Chizus, my life Chizus applied episode two eighteen every Sunday, eight to nine p.m. Thank you very much and be well.